When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old... Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply. So I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he'll progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. 
Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. And I want to say a very special thank you to Andrew. What I just read was written by him. He's a fantastic copywriter, and he was able to do this for me so that I could get the word out on my dog. So if you want to visit his website, go to sublimelime.ca, and that's two limes. That's sublimelime.ca. I would like to say welcome to the newest patron of the podcast, Martin Strache. After a couple dozen governors general spanning over 100 years, we have finally reached the point where Canada made the step to have its first female governor general, and that woman was someone who broke a lot of barriers in her career, Jeanne Sauvé. Born Jeanne Mathilde Benoit on April 26, 1922 in Saskatchewan, where her father was building churches, nunneries, and private homes. She would move with her family to Ottawa in 1926, where her father worked as a contractor. From a young age, her father instilled in her the belief that she could rise to great heights. He would take her to Parliament Hill and show her the bust of Agnes MacPhail, the first female member of Parliament, and he would say to her, quote, You could become a member of Parliament someday if you wanted to, end quote. After attending school in Ottawa, where she was the head of her class, she would go on to study at the University of Ottawa. Sauvé would say, quote, I was always the top of my class. The truth is, I do not ever remember being second, end quote. She would take classes at night and worked as a government translator by day to pay for her schooling. In 1942, she became the president of the Young Catholic Students Group, which required her to move from Ottawa to Montreal. She would stay with the organization until 1947. Moving to Montreal was something Sauvé loved, which gave her the opportunity to use her native language. She would say, quote, It was like freedom to me. Movies in French, my language spoken everywhere, no more feelings of rejection. I felt though I had come home. End quote. In 1947, she would marry her husband Maurice, and they would move to London, where he attended the London School of Economics. While there, she would teach and tutor part-time. In 1949, they moved to Paris so he could get his doctorate, and Sauvé worked in Paris as the director of the Youth Secretariat at UNESCO. While there, she also earned a degree in French civilization. The couple returned to Canada in 1952, and Sauvé began to work as a journalist and broadcaster for CBC and Radio Canada. She would also do work for CTV, various American networks, and several newspapers. Her first program, Femina, was a large success and would lead her to move to CBC television. Unusual for the time, she would cover politics, typically reserved for men at the time, and in that capacity, she would interview former Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent. Now, Louis Saint Laurent with Jeanne Sauvé. I think, Monsieur Saint Laurent, your father uh, was in politics and was even a candidate at one time. Well, he, he was uh, in, uh, in 1900 and... Well, fortunately for him, he was defeated. I think it was a good thing for him that he was defeated because... Why was it such a good thing? Well, uh, uh, he had still uh, responsibilities for uh, the rest of the the family flock. And uh, uh, it would have been difficult for him to to carry on... uh, he had had to spend some considerable time in Quebec attending sessions of the legislature. 
would have, would not have been different from any other one, was it that uh, the family... Well, perhaps not, but uh, 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 what uh, the consequences were on the families of others didn't impress me as much as the possible consequences on her own family. In 1959, she and her husband had their only child, Jean-Francois. As a journalist, she would create Opinions, a half-hour youth panel that discussed controversial topics of the day, including teenage sex, parental authority, and student discipline. Charles Lynch said years later, quote, As a journalist, she was one of the best in the country. She was so alive, end quote. The fact that her husband was a liberal member of Parliament worried some, but she remained impartial throughout her journalism career with CBC. In 1964, Sauvé became the first woman elected as president of, and I'll do my best to pronounce this, l'Institut Canadien d'Affaires Publiques, which was a think tank that held annual conferences. An advocate for young people traveling the world, she would say in 1980, quote, We were all convinced that if young people were just given a chance to communicate with other young people, East and West, Catholic and Protestant, French and English, the problems that arise from fear and a sense of foreignness would quickly be eliminated, end quote. In 1970, she would speak out in support of Prime Minister Trudeau and his invoking of the War Measures Act during the October crisis. This would raise her profile in the Liberal Party and move her towards her eventual political destiny. And of course, there's been a lot of soul-searching about the FLQ, now outlawed and hunted. How did they develop to this point? Jean Sauvé, a freelance journalist and broadcaster, was asked if the FLQ was developed by repression in Quebec. I think until now, um, I don't think the terrorists could invoke that they have developed because of repressive measures. I think we have had a very free society. These people have been able to express themselves um, quite freely in our society, and the media have reflected um, uh, our ethics about this that they should be allowed to express a point of view that wasn't the point of view of the majority. I don't think that they have been submitted to a repressive society. Now, with the facts that we have had and the events that we have had, of course, we have brought in the army, we have tightened our security measures, and rightly so, because we, I think we are menaced. Now, will we ever go back to the same type of freedom that we enjoyed before. I have questions about that. I know that some uh, foreign correspondents who have been here to cover the events have been amazed at the amount of freedom that was still possible in a situation like the one that we know. Uh, perhaps this is all to our uh, great credit that we have uh, maintained this uh, freedom regardless of the uh, gravity of the situation. But what we have to do, I think, um, is when this is over, uh, is to try to reorganize our society so that it will be more secure. Yet I think we should make an effort to preserve the freedom because um, it's only this climate of freedom that will uh, allow the progress, the real progress, economic and social, which this province has to make. In 1972, she ended her journalism career to take things to the next level with a career in politics. With a strong following because of her journalism career, the Liberal Party approached her to run in Montreal for Parliament. And while she was at home as a journalist, she found campaigning to be something she was not used to and the questions she was asked to be sexist. She would say, quote, 
I felt uneasy for the first time in my life when I was campaigning. I felt people were taking a second look at me and wondering whether a woman was adequate for the job. They wondered what would happen to my husband and my son. I must say I had qualms about it myself. End quote. She would win her riding and begin her career in Parliament. The Globe and Mail wrote, quote, Not since Pierre Trudeau, Jean Marchand, and Jérôme Perletier in 1965 have Quebec voters sent Ottawa a new member of Parliament with as much celebrity status as Jeanne Sauvé. End quote. She would be appointed almost immediately as the Minister of State for Science and Technology, becoming the first woman from Quebec to hold a federal cabinet post. In 1974, after another election win, she was named the Minister of the Environment. Her main goal in that portfolio was to deal with the rising pollution found in the St. Lawrence Seaway, as well as the dangers of PCBs. So, how does a woman get to Parliament? Jeanne Sauvé has a few ideas. Work, work hard. <laughs> get to know the, uh, the rules of the game and work very hard. There's no doubt that we've got to work twice as hard as a man. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not always talking about discrimination against women, but there is no doubt that a woman has some odds against her. So she has to, to uh, overcome those odds by working very hard, being very conscientious about learning uh, the job, the rules of the game, especially the games of politics, um, and uh, trying to make her mark. Jeanne Sauvé was one of those five women sitting in the House at Dissolution. She's a Liberal member for the Montreal riding of Aounsic and a member of the Cabinet as Minister of Science and Technology. She's made it to the top in the relatively short space of 18 months, and that makes it look and sound easy. I find uh, that the caucus, and as a matter of fact, the whole House of Commons, uh, is accepting women uh, as something very natural in the House of Commons. Um, and I find it's very easy for the three of us on our side, and I often speak with the others on the other side, and um, we, we, we find no kind of discrimination, no feeling of unrest because uh, there are women in the ball game now and this kind of thing. But Jeanne Sauvé is the wife of a former liberal cabinet minister and was a well-known journalist and broadcaster in Quebec before she entered politics. Her case illustrates at least two of the truisms that surround successful women parliamentary candidates. Number one, she's the wife or widow of a known politician. Number two, she's one of those rare women who's well known in her own right, or she works harder than anyone else in the riding. One year later, she was made the Minister of Communications as well as the Secretary of State for External Affairs. After the Liberals came back into power after a short stint in the opposition from 1979 to 1980, Sauvé was asked by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to become the Speaker of the House of Commons. She would accept and became the first female Speaker in history. She chose to take the Speaker's job over a cabinet post as she felt, quote, it might not have gone to a woman and that breakthrough would have been delayed, end quote. Many applauded the decision, not just because it was felt that it was time for a woman to take the post, but because Sauvé was known to be a good public speaker, had the right temperament for the job, and was not overly partisan. At the same time, Quebec was going through a referendum on independence, and Sauvé wanted to campaign for national unity, something she couldn't do as the neutral Speaker of the House. Trudeau and the other party leaders agreed that the issue was too serious to not let her campaign on, and she was allowed to take a public stand on sovereignty. On April 14, 1980, she became the Speaker of the House of Commons, 
and also the first non-lawyer to have the role. She would say, having taken the position, quote, I feel absolutely great. The job is fantastic, end quote. At first, she had difficulty with the position, often getting the names of MPs and their writings wrong. She also had to have the speaker's chair replaced so her feet could touch the ground. At one point, she called Trudeau the leader of the opposition, which was quite funny for the gathered house. And while that was a humorous mistake, opposition MPs began to question her competence. She would say, quote, The hostility was not pleasant. I was not used to it. It is a very lonely job in the sense that you cannot fraternize too much with the members, and you do not go to caucus or political meetings. You grow to live without friendship and hope it will come back when your term is over. End quote. The NDP caused a bit of a stir at the end of today's question period, too. Several NDP members got up and walked out of the House in protest against the way Jean Sauvé, the new speaker, is taking care of business. Bruce Cameron reports. As Speaker of the House of Commons, Jean Sauvé is the one who keeps the sometimes unruly members in order, settles disputes, and during the high-profile question period, decides who may ask a question. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Speaker. Because that's the time the opposition can make its most points, usually they're the ones who get recognized. Occasionally, though, a few Liberals get permission to ask a few questions, too. And today the NDP charged that those occasions have become too frequent. Sauvé doesn't deny that the Liberals have had a better chance well, recently. I, I, in the last weeks, more Liberals did get up. Uh, they have been more active. And since they had not been getting their share of questions before, when they did get up in greater numbers, I just had to recognize a little bit more. But the statistics there, when they get 5% of the questions during the whole time of this parliament, as compared to 68% and 27%, there's no unfairness there. Apart from the idea of cutting into their time, the opposition is also upset at the type of questions the Liberals ask. They're not asking questions to, to seek out information of benefit to their constituents. We believe that they are abusing the uh, question period by, by asking questions which are basically uh, setting up ministers to, to, give, to make announcements. And uh, that, uh, that's not the role of question period. And the, the quality or the intention of the question has nothing to do with the chair. The chair doesn't uh, interfere into the quality of the question as for, to the quality of the answer, as a matter of fact. Uh, when a member is recognized, he asks his question. It, if it looks to the opposition parties that it's a planted question, this is of no concern to the chair. Part of Sauvé's problem is that she was sworn in as speaker only three months ago, and she says she's still learning, and she'll keep on trying to become a good speaker. Meanwhile, the NDP plan to keep close track of question period tomorrow to make sure she does. Bruce Cameron, CBC News, Ottawa. After a few months, though, she began to excel in the role, and she would preside over some very intense debates, including the repatriation of the Constitution in 1982. She would also overhaul the finances of the House, eliminate inefficient practices, reduce House employment, lower the operations budget of the House, and cut into the bureaucracy as well. She eliminated 300 House of Commons support personnel, which helped save $18 million in annual expenses. And some MPs were unhappy with the changes which included having to clear their own plates in the Commons cafeteria. She also opened the first daycare centre in Parliament Hill, which for a time was the only such facility in the entire federal government. She also closed a private restaurant in the Wellington building that had been installed without her approval, and she stated it ruined the traditional staid decor of the buildings. 
Last night on The National, we reported the bitter power struggle that's been going on on Parliament Hill the last four years. A struggle which began when Jean Sauvé, the Speaker of the House of Commons, started to bring administrative practices into the 20th century. Tonight, in the last part of a special series, Jason Moskovitz tells us just what Sauvé and her parliamentary administrator have done. Arthur Silverman rolls into work when most people are rolling over in bed for that last 15 minutes of sleep. He's there at 7 a.m., and so are the people around him. With the go-ahead from Jean Sauvé, the Speaker of the Commons, and to a lesser degree, Jean Marchand, the Speaker of the Senate, they set out to clean up the administrative mess on Parliament Hill. People have their own fiefdoms to uh, preserve, and she was upsetting those fiefdoms right, left, and center. Gus Cloutier, the sergeant-at-arms, was the first to see his fiefdom crumble, and it didn't take long for the battle lines to be drawn. It was Major General Cloutier and a group of Liberal and Tory MPs who preferred the old ways against Silverman and Jeanne Sauvé. Neither Silverman or Cloutier would agree to an interview. Before Silverman, Cloutier used to be responsible for the blue-collar staff, and everyone knew patronage had a lot to do with who got what jobs and how many jobs were given. Even though two people were often assigned to do one job, the House of Commons still managed to pay 95,000 hours overtime in 1979. Under Silverman, overtime's been cut by two-thirds, with fewer employees. Silverman's fired more than 200 temporary workers, mostly blue-collar workers. The bickering between the factions often got out of hand, but there's no question it peaked when Gus Cloutier opened a private dining room in that room over there without telling Madame Sauvé he was opening it. When Sauvé and Silverman found out the dining room was costing the taxpayer $12 a meal, Cloutier was publicly rebuked. Sauvé ordered that the dining room be shut down. It's an episode that will be long remembered. It was an act that's just unbelievable, that is just incomprehensible and unexcusable. You know, um, I don't know what power there is that, that keeps them in that position. The old ways were gone, and some MPs resented it. To many, Silverman was too powerful and too aggressive. Mr. Silverman is a very bright fellow. He might be the right man for the job if he was doing it the proper way. And that going ahead and thinking that he's, he's, he runs the House of Commons and he's the boss. This administrator uh, has been very cost-conscious. And to too significant a degree is trying to run this place almost as a profit-making institution. Well, it isn't. And some argue the administrator is mistreating the employees. Well, we have lots of uh, businessmen across Canada that the employees just love them because they know how to handle people and they have a method that... Once again, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. Where is the morale bad? Are, are people that had it too soft? Are people that were, were riding on the system? Is, 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 are, are there people that are fighting the change that's going on? No speaker before Sauvé ever had an administrator, and there's no guarantee future speakers will have one either. The job's a temporary one until the necessary legislation's passed, if it's passed. The administrator's job as such is not necessary. Should the job of administrator be made full-time? Should the legislation be passed that administrator... Personally, I do not agree at all with that. 
You don't believe there should be an administrator in the House of Commons? Absolutely not. This House of Commons should be run by the MPs. Others argue we've come further since she took over in 1980 than in the last three or four decades. Those who run the country can't agree on how to run their own House of Commons. And until they do, there is bitterness and uncertainty, perhaps best expressed by this employee with 20 years service. It's like working, sitting on a time bomb, waiting for something to explode and you don't know what's coming up next. While there were hiccups, like the 32 NDP MPs walking out of the House to protest her allowing the Liberals to have more questions than the opposition, and the famous bell ringing episode that lasted for 15 days when the Progressive Conservatives refused to show up for a vote on the energy legislation, she would win the respect of the House. In regards to the energy issue, there were calls for her to force everyone to come back to the vote, but she would say, quote, There is an important principle that one has to keep in mind. The House gets into a mess. The House gets itself out of the mess. End quote. By the time her role came to an end, even her critics felt that she was a firm and fair Speaker of the House. On November 30, 1983, her term as Speaker of the House ended, and on December 23rd of that year, she became the first female Governor General of Canada. She was the second female Governor General in the entire Commonwealth after Elmira Minata Gordon, who was the Governor General of Belize in 1981. She would say it was, quote, a magnificent breakthrough for women. It was a great Christmas present. It is not the end, it is just an evolution in my career, end quote. Prime Minister Trudeau would make the decision without telling his cabinet or his caucus and he waited until nearly Christmas when few people were in the House of Commons to announce the decision. When he did, though, it was met almost universally with praise. Her installation as Governor-General was delayed, though, as she was hospitalized with a serious illness in January 1984, but she would finally be installed as Governor-General in May 1984. She would remain private about what the illness was, stating that the public only needed to know that she was all well now. Some speculated it was cancer, while others believed it was a respiratory illness. The CBC and other news organizations would even draft preliminary obituaries. When she was finally sworn in, she appeared to be walking stiffly and shuffled her feet beneath her large dress. She also spoke quietly and appeared to have lost weight. Trudeau would say when she was sworn in as Governor-General, quote, It is right and proper that Her Majesty should finally have a woman representative here. We are gathered today to celebrate a remarkable person, but also a welcome evolution of our society. End quote. It is right and proper that Her Majesty should finally have a woman representative here. I am happy and proud to participate in this momentous event, the installation of our first woman Governor General. We're gathered today to celebrate a remarkable person, but also a welcome evolution of our society. In fact, for this historic event to take place, a natural candidate for the position had to be available at the appropriate time. The time is appropriate because our modern society is increasingly aware that women's qualities of mind and heart are every bit as valuable as men's and that we need their fresh approach and commitment to peace and mutual support in order to establish a more humane society in Canada and throughout the world. The time is appropriate, especially because for some years now, outstanding women have been challenging and conquering old taboos. 
With skill and determination, they have won access to the highest positions in the land. By freeing themselves from the restrictions that circumscribe their situation, they have inspired us to shake off old prejudices and practices. I'm thinking here of pioneers like Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Louise McKinney, Irene Parlby, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Therese Casgain, and many others who waged an uncertain battle at difficult times in our history. I'm thinking too of Pauline Vanier, Nora Michener, Gabrielle Léger, and Lily Schreier, who have a special place in the hearts of Canadians because their strength and unselfishness have left their stamp on their husbands' tenures as governors general. Lastly, I'm thinking of all those women who have opened the doors of our highest institutions to their colleagues. Women's like, women like Agnes MacPhail, who in 1921 became the first woman elected to the House of Commons of Canada. Karine Wilson, the first woman to be called to the Senate in 1930. Then in 1957, Ellen Fairclough, the first woman to serve in a federal cabinet. Réjeanne Laberge-Collat, the first woman to serve on a Supreme Court appointed in 1969. Muriel Ferguson, who in 1972 became the first woman to serve as Speaker of the Senate. Sylvia Austrey, who in the same year was the first woman appointed to a Deputy Minister's position in the Federal Public Service. Pauline McGibbon, in 1974, appointed the country's first woman Lieutenant Governor. Constance Bluby, the first woman to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1982. In her first speech as Governor General, she would say, quote, our commitment to peace must govern our state of mind and determine our approach to life and to work. This cannot be achieved in a nation of polarized thought and divided action. The desire for unity is, beyond doubt, the factor that inspires people to come together to create a truly human community. Sauvé would focus on national unity, peace, and youth as her mandate as Governor General. In that role, she established two awards for students wanting to enter the field of special education for exceptional children. She would find she enjoyed her role in the first six months. In December 1984, she said, quote, I found serenity here. I am above the fray. My mind is free to reflect on matters of concern to the country without having to go to battle. End quote. She would work long hours starting work at 9.30 a.m. and often worked until 11 p.m. due to the receptions she had to attend. City Hall in Brockville, Ontario. For Her Majesty's representative in Canada, the Commander-in-Chief and Keeper of the Great Seal, a simple whistle-stop of a visit. Even on this dreary summer afternoon, small crowds line the route. It's a mix of the very young and the very old. There is little pomp and circumstance here. Light security, no military bands or honor guards to inspect. The highlight is a ritual planting of trees, a longtime staple in the Governor General's repertoire of events. There is one in her honor, one in honor of Steve Fonio. Okay, I'll help you. Just a minute. We'll get organized here. Her affectionate helper here is a charming five-year-old boy, himself a young victim of leukemia. Good job. Good job. Good job. 
for Canada's 23rd Governor General, it's a long way from the daily pressures of cabinet posts and the Speaker's chair. When Jen Sauvé was appointed Governor General, there was much acclaim. A woman, a Francophone born on the prairies, the only reservation was her reputation as a partisan politician. But now those political convictions of a long career as journalist and cabinet minister must be shrouded in the vice-regal niceties of ceremony and political neutrality. As governor general, she would travel to Europe, Latin America, and Asia, and she found meeting people to be the best part of her job in Canada as well. She would say in 1990, quote, It seems to me every visit to any of the communities I have been to has been a highlight. You never know what you're going to see who you're going to meet, it's always full of surprises. And everywhere you meet people who are dedicated to what they are doing. That is the rule, to go and meet people, making them conscious of the crown and the importance of the constitution in their country. She would also keep up to date with cabinet papers and met every two weeks with the Prime Minister, first Pierre Trudeau and then Brian Mulroney. While they were cordial in public, it's believed there was friction between herself and Mulroney as she did not approve of his attempts to create a more presidential aura to the position of Prime Minister. This was seen while Mulroney greeted Ronald Reagan when he arrived in Canada for the Shamrock Summit, rather than Sauvé, which would have been traditional. Mulroney would also use her summer residence for the summit in what many saw as an added insult to Sauvé. She would get her revenge, though, during the annual Parliamentary Press Gallery dinner during a speech when she said to the crowd and Mulroney in a poem, quote, the Irish were at it, the Shamrocks were golden, Mulroney and Reagan don't seem beholden. For the use of the fort and the loan of the key, they were working, they said, there was no room for me. Sove would also be criticized for elevating her position to be more presidential, and critics would call her time as vice-regal Republican Hall. There was also speculation that her staff meddled with the plans of Lieutenant Governor Frederick Johnson of Saskatchewan to host a dinner at Government House in Regina, which Sauvé was to be guest. Municipal event organizers for visits by Sauvé were also told that there would be no singing of the royal anthem, and the loyal toast to the Queen would be to Sauvé instead. One of the favorite activities of the Governor-General was the annual Christmas party that was held for the Ottawa Boys and Girls Club. Children would come, enjoy lunch, meet Santa, and Sauvé walked around in a paper party hat, talking with guests. Through her time as Governor-General, she was described as a person who mingled well with common Canadians, especially children, while maintaining the dignity of the position. One story relates how a parent who lived near Government House thought at Halloween that one of the staff would be handing out candy. She relates, quote, It turns out to be the Governor-General herself. It showed another side of her. End quote. Sauvé would establish a foundation to promote excellence for young Canadians, donate a trophy for women's field hockey and ringette, and she also established the Jeanne Sauvé Fair Play Award for national amateur athletes who demonstrated non-violence and fair play in their sport. One thing she was criticized for was the partial closing of the grounds at Rideau Hall in 1986. It's not known if she made the decision or if it was made by her security officials. It would later be found out that $700,000 of taxpayer money was spent to build a fence to keep people out. The grounds would not reopen until 1990 when her successor, Raina Titian, took over. People would still visit, but the fence was said to be in place to eliminate needless traffic and to improve security. Sauvé would say that apart from the media and a few neighbors, very few people complained. She would say, quote, How could they complain? We've advertised out to Vancouver and said, please come to Rideau Hall. 
and people are coming. We've had 85,000 this year, end quote. In her final message as Governor General, her New Year's message in 1989, she would say, quote, The country is no longer in its infancy. No longer must it ask whether to be or not to be. We have gone beyond the state of constitutional experimentation and compromise, end quote. Fellow Canadians, as we usher in the last decade of this century, this is the last opportunity I will have to speak to you. I would like to give you my heartfelt wishes for a happy new year, and thank you for the affection that you have lavished on me. More than five years have passed since I was appointed Governor General. I have kept in touch with your concerns, shared your lives, and discovered your aspirations. During my numerous trips throughout Canada, visiting towns both large and small, I discovered the distinctive features of communities rich with talent oriented toward the future, and determined more than ever to continue on the road to progress. I would like to congratulate my successor, who I'm sure will find as much satisfaction in representing the great Canadian family as I have. Like me, he will discover the greatness of the men and women who strive to promote the growth and development of this unique and privileged country. It is easy to find fulfillment here. There are no obstacles to freedom, for Canada is, above all else, a country of hope. With the recent memory of my meeting with you in mind, I pondered the issue of Canadian unity. Such reflection is essential in any society that would have to expand its concerns to global proportions and take its place in a community that knows no borders. More than ever before, Canada must consolidate its experience and above all, put its unity to the test. The country is no longer in its infancy. No longer must it ask whether to be or not to be. We have gone beyond the stage of constitutional experimentation and compromise. The Canadian provinces have decided to join together in a confederation and within diversity to facilitate the emergence of an identity that no longer leaves any doubt as to our distinctiveness. This was seen by many as Sauvet taking a stand regarding the Meech Lake Accord, and it drew criticism from some. Sauvet would say, quote, Beach Lake is an accord that is different from a pact. I was making a historic reference, but if people want to interpret it that way, I can't prevent it. End quote. In January 1990, her term as Governor General came to an end. Her last act before leaving her post was to create the $10 million Jeanne Sauvé Youth Foundation to help bring together young people with leadership abilities from around the world to discuss global problems. She would say upon her retirement, quote, I hope to be remembered as someone who cared enormously for her country, end quote. In her time as Governor General, she issued 784 Orders of Canada, 652 Medals of the Order of Military Merit, 7,200 Academic Medals, and was the honorary patron of over 200 organizations. She also traveled over 570,000 kilometers, visited 300 Canadian towns and cities, gave 427 speeches, and attended almost 500 functions per year. 
She would also welcome 18 world leaders to Canada, including President Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul II, and five members of the royal family. She would retire to Montreal with her husband, who passed away in 1992. Unfortunately, her own retirement would be tragically far too short. On January 26, 1993, almost three years to the day she left as Governor-General, she passed away. As we mentioned earlier, the tributes to Jeanne Sauvé have already begun. She has been called a woman of firsts, and she will perhaps be best remembered for her time as Governor-General. But as we hear from Jason Moskowitz, some of her biggest challenges came during her stint as Speaker of the House of Commons. After serving in Pierre Trudeau's cabinet through much of the 70s, Jeanne Sauvé came into real prominence in Ottawa when Trudeau made her Speaker of the Commons following the 1980 election. Being the first woman Speaker really meant something then, because of the fight Sauvé had to gain respectability. Thirteen years ago, the House of Commons was very much a man's world, and there was Jeanne Sauvé, the boss. Her first few months were plagued with problems. She had no legal experience. As a minister, she had never spent a lot of time in the Commons. At first, she really didn't understand the place. She made mistakes. One of her more memorable was when a shell-shocked Sauvé turned to Prime Minister Trudeau and called him the leader of the opposition. The place erupted in laughter. The ever-so-proud Sauvé stood humiliated. Then there was the time Parliament ground to a halt. The bells rang for almost two weeks. Many blame Sauvé for letting it get out of hand. But as time wore on, her toughness showed. Some of the men howled about her incompetence, and she took them on. The men who were screaming the loudest were the veteran MPs from all political parties who ran Parliament Hill back then. They ran it like it was their private fiefdom. There were few controls on hiring, spending, traveling, and partying. In the political fight of her life, Sauvé took them on, and at great personal cost, she reformed the administration of Parliament Hill from top to bottom. She was always very proud of those reforms she forced on the reluctant ones. Being the competitive person she was, she was really proud that she took on a group of stubborn men and beat them. Jason Moskowitz, CBC News, Ottawa. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney would state, quote, Her example and actions have touched and inspired millions of Canadians. All those who were honoured with her friendship or had the privilege to work or serve with her will always remember her natural goodness and her clarity of mind, end quote. Liberal leader Jean Chrétien stated, quote, People from coast to coast will be saddened to hear this news. She was truly dedicated to Canada and its people, end quote. Sauvé was given a state funeral in Montreal. I'll end this episode with what Carl Mullins of McLean said of her after her death. He stated, quote, Her manner has been described as haughty, her presence sometimes stiffly sedate, always beautifully groomed in high fashion, none of which seemed to endear her to the more ardent feminists or to some members of the public at large. But away from official occasions, and among many who met her personally, what springs to memory of Jeanne Sauvé are her warmth, her intelligence, her deep belief in Canada, and her firm faith in its young people. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Jeanne Sauvé. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at Rainetician. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate.
And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Pringnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Governor Journal of Canada, Library and Archives Canada, Maclean's Wikipedia, North Bay Nuggets, CBC, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Star, Regina Leader Post, Calgary Herald, and the Montreal Gazette. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.